Hi, I'm David Manchin with Cannabis Equipment News, and with me this week is Sean Honecker, owner and founder of Yeti Farms. Thank you very much for joining me today, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. So could you start by telling me a little bit about Yeti Farms? Uh, what are you guys doing out in Colorado? Yeah, so we're an uh, all-organic outdoor cultivation facility. We're the first large-scale outdoor cultivation facility licensed in the state of Colorado. And uh, for a lot of years, we focused on a soil-to-oil business model, which was basically cultivate all-organic cannabis outdoors once a year, uh, take that product and turn that into a concentrate, variety of forms, whether that be butter, wax, shatter, live, HTFSE, HCFSE, distillate, isolate, you name it. We started covering every single type of concentrates that was possibly available as a consumer. And we did that for a number of years up until last year. We kind of changed things up and started making an edible. Okay. Um, why the choice uh, for outdoor cultivation? Uh, I've been in the industry for a long time. Um, I moved to Colorado in 1999 from Indiana. I didn't move here for the industry. I moved because I didn't see any future in Indiana. So I moved to Colorado and I was in the financial world. Uh, at that time, I was slightly introduced to cannabis, but not very much. Once I fully got into the cannabis scene, which would have been roughly about 2005, I was fully immersed in the scene. Um, I started to ask a lot of questions, and those questions were, how is your cannabis cultivated? Uh, what do you use to, as, as growth hormones? How do you actually cure it? How do you, everything. And so at that point, I started to realize that everybody cultivated indoors, and the reason for that was because of federal prosecution. So we started to see a lot of uh, artificial lighting, salt-based nutrients uh, that were being used. And I did that for a number of years and became very proficient at doing that. But I just saw a future that cannabis was a commodity. And with it being a commodity, it was a very hot commodity in 2006 and 2007 when we began to really start to get into the legal side of this game. But I saw that price changing as more and more people came into the market. The price wasn't going up. The price was going down. So I have to look at this from a business standpoint and said our cultivation costs in those years were around $1,100 a pound and to cultivate indoors. And I saw the profit eventually being lost. So I went to my business partners and simply said, I think that we should split out and go to an indoor or an outdoor versus the indoor and even a consider, consider a greenhouse. They didn't want to do that which is perfectly fine. They stuck with an indoor portfolio, gave me a small buyout. And I came down to Pueblo in 2014 and started Yeti Farms on the idea that we can cultivate outdoors cheaper than anybody else can cultivate. And we'll be able to use the cannabinoids. I was never into selling the flower. I was never into smelling or selling the actual smoke. I had graduated past that into doing concentrates. And so that's all I focused on was a cannabinoid profile versus a flower profile. And that kind of led us down the rabbit hole of outdoor cultivation. And it all started based off of simple financing of business. What was your initial footprint and uh, what's your footprint now? Yeah, so we started out, <clears throat> I have no partners. I have no investors. Um, I started out, I bought a 55 acre tract here uh, west of Pueblo, about 30 miles. And the initial garden held 500 medical plants. That's all it was. We put them in 300 gallon containers. They grew six, eight, 10 feet tall. Uh, we pulled several pounds off of every plant. And that was our business practice, just to extract it and sell it on the medical side. When the state began, uh, when we legalized recreational cannabis, we they started handing out the licenses. I looked at the future of that and said, I think that's where the future is going to be headed. Then we got into the recreational scene. So as we begun to increase our plant counts, we now have a 3,000 plant count for our medical. We have an 1,800 plant count for our recreational garden. And both of those will be increased in this off season. So we'll be applying for a tier two in the Colorado system on the recreational side, which will take us to 3,600 plants. And then we'll be applying for an additional tier on the medical side, which hopefully gives 4,500 plants. So in total, we'll have 3,800 rec and 4,500 medical for the 2021 crop. Well, I mean, uh, with such expans expansion, have you had any issues uh, with staffing or finding workers or anything with the, you know, sort of skills gap that other uh, people have had run into trouble with? 
Yeah, so obviously, um, a lot of people want to work in the cannabis industry. It's seen as it's still very new. It's cool. So everybody wants to work in a really cool emerging industry. What a lot of businesses haven't figured out is how to make money in this industry. So unfortunately, people are working for wages that they're are below actually what their value is worth. That's a sacrifice that had been made for a lot of years in the industry. And we even made these, our employees even made these sacrifices up until last calendar year. And then we began a different program. We just figured out how to operate the business differently and actually create more profit. And we're really big on handing this back to the people that actually have helped us. So it is a challenge to find the correct person. Finding people isn't hard. I have 50 resumes right now, people that want to come to work. It's probably a qualified person that's willing to be trained to do the proper job. Uh, but at this point, we operate the entire facility uh, with nine employees, me being number 10. Uh, you said that you started with, you know, no partners, no investors. Uh, you know, and given the regulatory landscape, it's really hard to find financing out there. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the difficulties that you kind of ran into and how you were able to overcome that? Um, I've operated a lot of businesses in my life. By far, this cannabis industry is the most challenging industry to work in. Um, as a small example, my very first hydrocarbon extraction facility I ever built, no one in the county had ever seen one. I was the first person to build one in the county. Um, the electrical inspector came in and looked at it and said, oh, you used MC cable. We can't allow you to do that. You have to put conduit up. Okay, you approve the plans, but all right, we'll do this. We put the conduit up. They came back to inspect the conduit, and they said, oh, God, you didn't take the MC cable down, did you? And we said, yes, you told us to. And I said, we're really sorry, but we figured out at a, at a conference this weekend that the MC cable is actually what we want. We don't want conduit in there because it can hold static electricity and those type of things. We had to tear down the conduit and put back up the MC cable cost me three times what the initial electrical bid was. Those types of things, you can't receive financial compensation from anybody for that. You can't go back to a loan officer and say, oh, my, my bill just went three times what it should be because there is no loan officer. There is no loan. I self-funded everything from the very beginning. Um, I had started an oil field business when I was 26 years old, actually homeless at the time, to be totally honest with you. Um, and sold that business four years later. And I took the uh, proceeds from that business and were able to dump this into Yeti Farms. The way we did it, I burned that money up and that money was gone in less than two years. Gone. Everything was finished. And then what we had to do is take a real hard look at this and figure out how to run this business the right way. We've never owned a dispensary. We're working on one for next year. Uh, but with the tax complications that came for that, it wasn't in our forecast to be able to do that. Uh, so we stuck with the cultivation, we stuck with the extraction, and for years uh, struggled trying to find our niche and how to make this work and how to make profits come together. We literally built the company gram by gram. So when I sold a gram of concentrates and there was $4 of profit in that, I hope I sold a 1000 of them because I need $4,000 in profit for this next project. That's how we did it. We didn't take any credit. Um, we got in a situation uh, with a bad former general manager where we ended up uh, out of nowhere, I was handed $160,000 of bills that I had no clue we'd been created. And we had to alleviate those bills as fast as possible to continue doing business, and we did. So now we literally go gram by gram, uh, and we operate in, in the black. The company's 100% operation in the black, and we don't owe a single person a dime anything. The entire 55 acres, every piece of equipment, every piece of packaging, anything that's on this farm is paid for in cash, and we own it. How... Uh so what was the business that you started when you, uh, you said you were homeless? Yeah. So, uh, I actually came from Indiana and was a financial planner for bank one for a number for, for a while in Denver and, uh, didn't like that. Got into outside sales. Didn't like living in the city. I grew up in the country in Indiana. So I moved to the mountains and after a variety of jobs, uh, I mean, I did everything. I put a Japanese soap tub in Neil Diamond's house. Like <laughs> I, I did. That's awesome. I, tour engines out of cars. I, I built custom four wheel drive rig. I did anything I could to make money than my skill sets. And um, in 2003, uh, I was working at a car dealership and a gentleman came in and spent $150,000 on trucks. Just bought two trucks to get cash for him. I asked him what he did for a living. He said, I'm in the oil and gas industry. Um, I went to work for him about a month later and it's a long, fun story. But uh, about a year later, I ended up breaking off from him and starting my own company. Um, some poor decisions were made to where I was at a bad point in my life where I was actually homeless. 
And uh, my alcohol, just to be bluntly honest with you, my alcohol addiction had taken over in my life and I was making poor decisions. With that, I had an opportunity to start this oil field company with my skill sets and the minimal amount of money that I had saved at that point. And someone gave me an opportunity. And I went from myself and one piece of equipment. I used to drive 41 hours straight and I would sleep eight and I would go back and drive 41 hours again. I did that nonstop for several years. Before I knew it, I had 72 employees. We ran 24-7, 365. We were doing $6 million a year and I was 30 years old. I had somebody come in and ask to purchase my company. I initially didn't want to sell it. A very dear friend of mine called me and uh, asked me why I didn't sell it. I told him my reasoning and he basically said that was stupid. And I, just, <laughs> I took his advice and that was in April of 2008. And by July of that year, all my friends that told me I was an idiot for selling my company uh, were begging me for money to make their mortgage payments. So uh, while the holy world was crashing, I was a retired 30-year-old millionaire. I mean, uh, given your background, do you think that's what helped keep Yeti Farms going? I mean, you kind of mentioned all these other people struggling to make money and uh, kind of uh, other companies flaming out. You know, is that, do you credit that for your perseverance? Oh, there's a long story to my life uh, that includes a lot of tenacity and pushing forward. <clears throat> but to simplify your answer, to simplify an answer to your question, yes. Um, a lot of people got into this industry with financed uh, partner and investor money. And they thought, oh, this is simple. We're going to make, you know, I'm going to build this grow. I'm going to push 200 pounds a month out of it. it the shit sells for $4,000 a pound. I'm going to pay this loan off in two months. Well, that doesn't work that way. And this business will show you everything where you did wrong very quickly. And with that, they just kept borrowing money. They would just, as soon as they couldn't make payroll, they would borrow money rather than go back and figure out why they couldn't make payroll. And with that, eventually those loans have to be paid back. So now when we're staring down the barrel of profit margins, I speak with my competitors because we're friends now. We're competitors, but we're all good friends. And I look at the profit margins and it's a vast difference. I look at their books and it's splashed with red. Mine is not splashed with red. We're splashed with black. It has to do with tenacity. It has to do with a lot of forward thinking. To be honest with you, it has to do with growing up really, really dirt poor and having to scrape by to figure out how to make everything work. I didn't buy a new tube for my bicycle tire. I went and got a hole in it. I patched the tube and put it back together. Mm -hmm. That type of mentality in life I think, can lead anybody to whatever their goal is in life. My goals have changed throughout my life. They used to be monetarily based. I could care less about money at this point in my life. It means nothing to me. It pays my bills and it gets me food in my mouth. Short of that, it's a nuisance. So when we started to give away as myself and as my company, we started to give more than we made. It was kind of really interesting. A lot of good things started happening in my life. Mm -hmm. No, uh, just from personal experience, I can agree with you where, uh, you know, when you grow up dirt poor, you're just... You know, times can be tough and you're like, oh, we're fine. Yeah. We have a house. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We have a house with the water turned on. Yeah, exactly. House. It ain't that bad. I don't care if the refrigerator's empty. I don't yeah. care if transmission's out in the car right now. That doesn't matter. Yeah. Dogs are chasing the ball. I can simplify my life that way. I'm not impressed by big houses, Ferraris, and fancy cars. That shit doesn't mean anything to me. I'm really impressed by the human being that lives extremely humble, but has the power to be able to throw down and do anything they want for the better of human humanity and people that that impresses me. That's what I want to be. That's the goal. I, want to be. I care less about driving a Range Rover in a big ass diesel truck. I have a big ass diesel truck. It's 260,000 miles on it. I love it. The thing drives all over. We have a lot of fun in it, but uh, I started to look at life differently and simplify my life, which made my business and my personal life a lot better just to simplify well it sounds like you uh, are looking to take your business acumen and help new help people out uh, i saw that you recently announced some uh, consulting services uh particularly as the five new states uh were legalized this election i actually was a little bit late to our meeting i apologize i had a, cons a client call from oklahoma um that i need to be over i'm leaving for oklahoma tomorrow then i have to go back next week i'm working with several groups over there trying to simplify these processes. Um, what we find a lot when it comes to the consulting, and believe me, I, there are some amazing consulting companies out there that are far more re better resourced than I am, I, I promise you. But we look at things differently. We actually look at the profit margins. 
we take the cool factor out of it and we actually look at the business. So with that, my build outs aren't really cool. They don't have a bunch of sensors on them. We don't have a really cool flashy TVs playing hip music in the back. We don't have any of that shit. Mm-hmm. We have what makes money. We buy the equipment from manufacturers that understand not everybody has a rich uncle with $25 million they can borrow money from. Some of us have to start at the bottom and be creative. Uh, I'll give you an example. My distillation machine that we use on a daily basis, the first quote I ever got for that machine was $72,000. The gentleman that quoted it just came to my shop last week, as a matter of fact. They saw that we were up and operating, and they asked, like, how much do you have set in that entire setup? What's the cost base on that? I'm $7,000 invested in it. myself. We pieced it together. I bought glass from China. I can't afford German glass, so I'm not going to buy it. So we bought China glass. Yes, it's not the highest quality in the world, but it does damn good. And when it breaks, you don't freak out and be like, oh, there goes a $7,000 piece of glass. You're like, so what? It was six, 700 bucks. We got another one sitting in the back. So when we really broke it down and looked at that, um, we got away from the bling bling side to look really cool. We just look at the numbers and try to make the, try to make the numbers look as good as possible. And people are astonished when they finally get to sit down and take a peek at my numbers, which I have no problem sharing with anybody. When uh, you sit down with those companies, uh, what is sort of, an, for somebody starting out, what's an ideal uh, mix of in terms of staff and what sort of equipment are you looking for? You know, like when people start out, should they be, you know, a mom and pop shop, you know, with minimal equipment or sort of what's your advice there? So it kind of really depends on your end goal. I have a, a good friend of mine. I won't mention his his business or his name, but he is one of the top three in the United States with operating this business. He operates in a couple of countries, in multiple states, everything. Very down to earth man. Really, really, really good guy. Him and I had a, a, a dinner about two weeks ago and we sat down with some peers of ours and it ended up just being him and I kind of volleying back and forth on the pros and cons of the way we ran our businesses. He went out and borrowed $70 million and built a damn empire. Mm-hmm. He's in litigations. There's constant arguments. No one can ever see on the same page. There's shit going on all the time. Me? I didn't borrow a dime. I didn't borrow anything from anybody and struggled to get by on gram by gram by gram. Oh, shit. 2018 winter came in early, knocked out our crop. Well, that just cost me $4 million, like potential income. When we looked at the differences between the two of us and where we're standing at right now, we had to understand that respectfully we took two different paths and he ended up in a different spot than I, and it really comes down to your personal. So I'll speak from my personal standpoint on what I would personally do. I love the idea of a small mom and pop that slowly creates and builds its own business and grows off of its own profit. From that, you have to be able to cultivate at the cheapest cost per gram of anybody else. And you have to be able to cultivate on a consistent basis. You have to have an outdoor crop, as an insurance, as a insurance policy is what we call that. You could get it, you could not get it. The outdoor crop is generally knocked down into concentrates or distillate. The indoor crop needs to be done in a geothermal greenhouse setup. We provide these through. I have no problem telling you who it is. You go onto YouTube right now and type "greenhouse in the snow." The gentleman's name is Russ. He's up in Nebraska. He makes the best greenhouses. We can produce cannabis for twenty-five dollars and ninety-four cents a pound with this complete setup I have. That's dried weight cannabis per pound. These greenhouses, I can produce 87 and a half pounds every 12 weeks at the greenhouse. So if I had to do this all over again, with the knowledge that I have right now, I would put in 12 of these greenhouses. I would put an extraction facility in. I would have a kitchen and I would have a vertically integrated to a dispensary. So I can vertically integrate all of my own product for the retail profit. If you have 12 of these greenhouses in, you'll produce between 87 and a half and 105 pounds of dried mud every single week. Plus the trim that comes off of that, you can count for about 40% of that would be trim. You can turn that into concentrates. You have your outdoor to turn your distillate. You would make edibles, you'd make cayenne concentrates, and you sell flour. With that model, right now in the state of Colorado, the wholesale model on that produces a million dollars a month. Not the retail, not the, not the dispenser, just the wholesale model. This is a million dollars a month. So uh, one of the things that I also found interesting was that you're, uh, you go all the way from cultivation to, it sounds like uh, you said you have plans to open your own dispensary as well. 
Could you talk a little bit about that decision versus, I mean, you know, maybe it's different for some people. Maybe some people are just cultivators and they don't want anything more. Why did you choose to kind of, you know, do the entire spectrum and continue branching out? Is it because to keep your cost down? Yeah, as cliche as this sounds, it's actually for the end user. It's okay. for the PC, it's for the customer. Um, we know that when we produce live soil flour, it's the cleanest flour. It's beyond organic. We know this. <clears throat> and most of the time when you try to buy this flour, it's extremely expensive. It, it, it is extremely expensive to buy it. They'll, they'll charge you up into $300 an ounce. Sometimes they'll get $350 an ounce for this. If I have a cost of $25.94 in a pound, I can turn around. If I can sell that pound at $2,500, $2,000 as a retail, I'm extremely happy. I've made all the profit I need to make. Yes, there's still meat on the bone, but I would rather the consumer get that meat than me get the meat. Remember, if I set this up and do it the way I want, I have 12 greenhouses. I'm harvesting 100 pounds every single week. I have to move that 100 pounds. I want it gone. So the next week when I got 100 pounds, it's gone too. If I sit there and try to knit the bone and charge people 350 an ounce, I'm going to get into a very elite, small percentage of people. If I charge $200 an ounce for fire, live soil, organic weed, I won't be able to keep it on the shelf. My consumers will receive the benefit for it. They'll go tell more people. They'll tell more people. Eventually, we open up more stores and open up more and more just as an organic growth. I don't like anything other than organic growth, everything from my plants to my food, the way my business operates. So, I mean, I like your sort of uh, bare bones equipment approach to startups, but as you're growing, are you adding more automation, the sensors, sort of more of the things that will help streamline the business? Yeah, so where we spend our money is uh, we invest into the field. We, uh, we invest into amendments in our field to keep the live soil, Korean natural farming techniques going in the field. It's not that much money. It really doesn't cost us that much annually to do that. So where we'll invest our money, as an example, uh, we've been packaging all of our yummies, which is our brand of gummies. We've been packaging those by hand for about three and a half, four months. because It's a brand new skew for us. I just went out and found a 30000 By the time I'm done with it, it'll be a $37,000 packaging machine. So instead of packaging 400 packages a day, now we can do 380 in an hour. Mm-hmm. And the types of, we started out literally mixing our gummies up and then we're mixing them in a KitchenAid. That's oh. what we mix, yeah. one gallon KitchenAid. And when they sold and we kept selling them, we're like, we can't, it's not fast enough. We, we, we need something bigger than a KitchenAid. Well, then I went and bought a 20 liter reactor, which is about a five gallon reactor. And we mix inside a five gallon. I just had a meeting this morning that if I take on a few, I have three large recreational accounts that we're not ready to take on until we reach that level. Because the last thing we want to do is disappoint a client and not be able to provide the uh, order that they put in. To get to these three, we're going to have to have 60 liter mixer in order to keep up with that. So right now we have 20. So it's going to be three times that size. So now we're already looking at like, okay, February, March, we're going to probably have to buy a 60 liter mixer. And that's just how we do it. We, we basically use that old bicycle until the things just broke. There's nothing, there's no tread, nothing left of it. The chain keeps falling off no matter how many times you tighten it. And then we're like, okay, put that in the garage in a special spot because it's, it's been great to us. It's made us a lot of money. We may come back to it, but here's a brand new bicycle. This one has speeds. This one has this, this one has this. Well, in six or eight months, we'll wear that one out. And then it'll be time to get the new one, the carbon fiber frame bicycle. And go, but I can never start out with a carbon frame bicycle. I'll kill every. What if this doesn't go? Then I'm sitting there with a carbon frame bicycle that looks really cool, but it's useless for me. I'd much have a little BMX bike that's a single gear and it go in the garage and never do anything if it doesn't go. If it goes, that little bicycle will get us to move just a little bit until we can go to the next level, next level, next level. No, there was a, on a previous interview, I had a, um, somebody had mentioned the equipment that winds up collecting dust at facilities. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just as, as a part of a reckless, not reckless spending, but people overextending and uh, sort of uh, not forecasting well enough. Um, he said that that's one of the things that kind of breaks his heart is that he goes into the facility and they're like, oh, we don't use that anymore. Uh, there's a, I don't mind telling you at all, this I walk into facilities commonly and see 150 to $450,000 CO2 extraction machines that are just sitting there. Yeah. I ask, I'm like, 
you have half a million dollars sitting there. What are you doing with it? Oh, we haven't used that thing in three years. It just takes too long. We do hydrocarbon. I'm like, sell it. Just sell it. And they're like, well, no one wants to buy it. Like, well, yeah, because they're shit. You, you, you listen to the wrong. I'm not saying they're all shit. I'm just saying these particular ones weren't a good product. So what happens is a lot of people jump in this with the whole idea of, oh, my nephew, he's been growing weed in the basement for three or four years. He knows exactly what he's doing. So he told us to buy this when they should have just spent the money with a consultant and gone out and saved the money in the long run. It's always cheaper to hire a professional. We all know this. I mean, in the beginning, if I could have paid someone to teach us how to make these gummies, it would have saved me nine and a half months of making gummies and never selling a single one. 422 recipes of gummies, throwing oh. 421 of them away. Just make it, throw it away, make it, throw it away. That's labor. That there's all sorts involved in that. That type doing that that way though, it's going to make our profits for it in the end because I could have gone out and hundred thousand dollars for a gummy recipe, no problem. It would have been spectacular. It would have worked and everything. We found one that was better. It probably ended up costing me pretty close to about the same amount of money, and it took me so much more time to do it. But I learned so much more in that process of doing it. Like everyone says, I mean engine blows up in your car and you go have it swapped out. You don't have any clue what just happened. Pull that engine out yourself, rebuild the entire engine all the way down to the crank bearings, put it back together, put it in your car. When you're driving down the road and you hear it tick, 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 you know what it is. You know what's mm-hmm. problem. You fix it. That's more of the companies that I work with and help create. You have to be able to drive your own equipment in order to work and do the way we do this. And that does not work for everybody. A lot of guys like to sit back in a chair and pay that invoice to have someone drive their equipment. So I guess you kind of, uh, you sort of answered this already, uh, but when you got into, when you got into the gummy side of the business, edibles, did you seek out any sort of like food manufacturing expertise or did you kind of start with, it sounded like you just kind of dabbled with the KitchenAid? Yeah. So the way we got into this is I went, uh, I'm very fortunate. I get to travel all over the country and into different countries, not just for cannabis, but a lot of it's based on cannabis. So my travels, I tried to buy about a year ago, I started buying gummies everywhere I went to. Everywhere I went to. I'm in Canada. I'm in Mexico. I'm in California, Oregon, Nevada. You name it. I'm all over the damn place. My gummies. It's not necessarily that I like gummies. I just kept proving the same thing to myself. It all tasted like shit. <laughs> they're sugar-coated. They're citric acid-coated. There's false flavors. They're adding fucking color. They're adding color to a gummy. Why? What do you need to add flavor or coloring for? It doesn't make any sense to me. And the worst thing is you can taste the cannabis. It just it's, it hits the back of your palate. You're like, ah, I don't want to taste that. So what we did is there's a brand. And one of these days I'm going to meet this guy. There's a brand called Albanese. Scott oh. Albanese. Was the company. Yeah, you're familiar with them. They're out of Maryville, Indiana. I'm from Indiana. So I had no clue who they were about two years ago. I whip into some gas station. I'm on my gummy thing, you know, because I've been thinking we're going to make it. We're gonna make it. I go in and I buy every damn brand of gummy they have. I first off, I open this bag up and the olfactory senses hit me. The smell hits my sensors. I'm like, whoa, this is a total new level of gummy. This is insane. Put it in my mouth and chew on it. There's like no gummy I've ever had in my life. It's soft. It breaks apart perfectly and it holds its firmness. That's really hard to find. Usually they're too hard. They're just waxed. They don't taste right. So this is how we actually came up with it. A, a good friend of mine I've known since I was four years old, um, his daughter decided to move to Colorado uh, last year. So she's been with her and her husband have been with us for about 17 months now. He came in, did some harvesting, started at the very bottom where everybody starts to start working. Okay. And in December of last year, November, December, I told her, I said, Hey, have you uh, ever had an Albanese gummy? And she has no clue what's coming. She's like, no, I, I don't have I give her this gummy. I said, try it. What do you think? And everybody in the shops eating them. Oh, these things are great. These are great. I said, cool. So you're going to be at our gummy manufacturer. You're going to run the kitchen. And she's like, Oh, okay. Well, how do I make these gummies? How do I make a gummy? I said, well, turn that bag over. You see that ingredients list right there. The first one is the most. The last one is the least. That's how we figured out how to make a gummy. Nine and a half months later, 422 recipes later, she handed me a gummy and I said, that's it. That's the flavor. 
that's consistency. That's exactly what I want. You have found the ratios. We reverse engineered it. Now you can send this stuff off to a, a lab. I know I can send that gummy straight to a lab and they'll actually reverse it. They'll tell me how much high fructose corn syrup. They'll tell me how much gelatin in it. They'll tell me how much sugar's in it. They'll tell me how much flavoring citric. They'll tell me everything. But again, it's all like the engine thing I just talked about. If your engine blows up, I want to know everything that goes into that engine. That's just me. It's how I do it. So we know how these gummies are made. We created our own gummy. It's our own recipe. It's our own SOP. Um, and the two compliments I was fishing for when we got these going was, number one, I would eat this gummy if it didn't even have cannabis in it. It's such a good gummy. Yeah. And the second one was, it's the most consistent gummy I've ever eaten. And the first customer said the exact words. I was like, well, something now. I know we're on to something. Um, of course, there's ups and downs as you start to grow and expand sizes. So you're going from a KitchenAid one-gallon mixer increasing. There's problems. We failed some tests. We lost some product. I mean, I've lost $100,000 in coming product. I've had it thrown in the trash because of different homogenizations and potencies. These are things you learn as you scale. So we, I don't let people go. I don't fire people over that. We encourage them to learn from their mistakes and move on to the next level. And with that, I now have a very confident team. We just hired the second crew. We're going to 16 hours a day, six days a week of making gummies. Uh, the demand is there for that. We're on permanent back order right now with our medical gummies in the state of Colorado, which is 10 100 milligram pieces, equaling one gram or a thousand milligrams in each package. We're looking at, into the future to start adding in CBD and CBN to get different entourage effects as you're eating it. But right now, we're on a permanent back order for making the, the gummies. I mean, uh, so of the 421, what was the worst attempt? Pardon me, what was the what? Of the uh, 421 recipes that failed, which one was like just the most memorably worst? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so some of these flavors, you have to mix them in order to come up. Like we have a, um, a black cherry. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's actually a couple different flavors that we mix. We have a Saturday morning pancake breakfast. So there's three different flavors that go into that to make that. Those ratios can get off horribly where the taste is so intense, your taste buds, this turned into something very unique for us that I'll get into. Your taste buds just basically jump off of your tongue and say, no, 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 no. This is way too, we've never had tangerine taste like this before. It's out of this, where we kind of mess with everybody. And we all know what we're doing, but you walk up, you're like, try this and see what you think. And they're like, oh God, what is it? I'm like, just tell us the flavor when you get it. And they'll eat it and watch their face just suck. And they're like, that's lime. That's lime. Like, yeah, we tried a margarita. It didn't work. This is what it comes out to. So I would say to this day, margarita was the worst. It, there was salt. There was tequila. And there was lime in it. And yeah. it tasted like a pile of poo. It did not come out good. It was <laughs> not tasty in the least bit. And the texture, what happens when you add some of these different ingredients, it'll change the texture of the gelatin. So it becomes soupier. But generally is what happens. It doesn't get harder. It gets soupier. So this was like the thickest gelatin margarita net out of like the bottom of a garbage. It was just gross. It just didn't uh, come right. But of course we made everybody try it just so they could say that they got to try it. Oh, but you have to. It opened up our mind to make us understand that our taste buds have an awful lot to do. I know this sounds silly to say this, but the taste buds have everything to do with when you're eating these gummies. So a friend of mine in California, they work in the coffee industry and a couple of them work in the food industry as well. These guys, a group of guys we used to hang around with in Denver and they moved out west. Anyhow, I'm talking about the gummies to them and things. And one of them goes, how do you get rid of the cannabis taste? And I said, oh, we use distillate. So you don't really taste the cannabis. And he calls shit on me. This is your full shit. You can taste it at the tail end. I said, well, you can actually, you can taste it at the very tail end. He says, I've eaten enough gummies. I know. And he says, well, Sean, why don't, why don't you use a bitter blocker? Excuse me? What, what's a bitter blocker? I don't know what that is. Yeah. He says, well, it's in 60% of the food that's available to consumers on a daily basis. Really? He said, like, take, take a soda, for example. If you drink a soda, there's actually so much sugar in that that your taste buds would send a signal to your brain to regurgitate the soda because it's a poison. The sugar is actually poisoning your body. 
Well, you have these bitter blockers in there. So they go across your tongue and it dulls down the percentage of sugar that your mind actually thinks you're getting. So you can stomach all that soda. It'll go down no problem. So they have thousands of different bitter blockers. And we found a combination of two different bitter blockers that block only the cannabis taste. Nothing else. They're not known for that. It's not an industry thing that people know how to do it. We just figured it out. That was part of that nine and a half months. So now you don't taste any cannabis. All you taste is the actual flavor of the gummy. Like horchata, you literally taste the sweet rice milk and you taste the cinnamon. You taste that. You don't taste any cannabis on the tail. At any point, uh, did you consider abandoning the uh, edible journey? Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, Before it even started, I abandoned it twice. Um, (laughs) Out of my own fears for the market. I was creating my own fears, my own anxiety. And being like, listen, I keep going to these dispensaries and they just keep telling me they have too many gummies. There's just too many gummies on the shelf. How am I going to stand out? And then I would come off my my little high ladder and be like, okay, how are you going to stand out? Because you're going to make a completely different gummy. That's, that's mm-hmm. it. You sell the best tasting gummy for the cheapest price. You'll sell the most popular. Yeah. That's the business part. Um, how has the pandemic affected your business? Well, I will say that unfortunately for a lot of people, 2020 has been a horrible year. Uh, COVID has infected. Uh, personally, I have friends that have gotten COVID. Uh, they're healthy now. No, there doesn't seem to be any problems okay. with it. But more importantly, the biggest problem is, is I've watched a ton of my friends that are entrepreneurs that have risked everything. If you've ever been an entrepreneur, you know what it is. You risk it all. Your time, your money, losing relations, all of it for this. Yes. Successful business, I've watched literally just get shot full of holes and deteriorate and the foundation fall over. It, it's, it's heart-wrenching. Um, I'm thinking of one particular person now that she did such good. We're all so proud of her. And now COVID has stripped her of her livelihood. Um, it's hard to watch. Um, and we had the meeting in April and I said, listen, guys, if the state says we're, we're closing this down, like we're not essential business, I'm telling you right now, we're going down to one to two people just to keep the wheels moving and we'll come back and be unemployment. We'll do everything we need to do, but I'm going to start laying people off. I'm not going to go broke trying to keep going through COVID. And the mayor came out, governor came out, I'm sorry, and said, nope, cannabis is an essential business, recreational and medical is an essential business. We kind of breathed a little bit of a sigh of relief, like, oh, thank goodness. It's still going to be a rough year. We know it's going to be a rough year. I was completely wrong. We've smashed every sales record I've ever had. I can't make product fast enough dispensaries are constantly calling, looking for more and more product. It's the best year my business has ever seen. Uh, were you guys threatened by uh, any of the wildfires? Thank goodness we were not. Uh, we had some smoke issues uh, that came about, but actually to be threatened by the fire, no. We did, uh, uh, in 2017, we did have a fire get about a mile and a half from the farm. Um, we ripped the entire field out in three days. Uh, so that's the, that's the biggest issue we've had this year. Our big issue was September 9th. We had nine and a half inches of snow at the farm. Precedented. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Well, of course, it'll happen in COVID years. So uh, we had nine and a half inches of snow. We ended up recovering from that very well. The plants are actually had enough moisture in them that they just bent over and then they back up with the sun. My leasers, I have two large lease farms on my property, two 10 acre leases. Their plants were massive. They're 10, 12 feet tall. They actually split like a giant, stepped on them and pushed them to the ground. They continue to let the plants keep growing because it, the cambium layer was still there. So it's sending nutrients to everywhere where it's supposed to be. And they just finished harvesting before this last, but, uh, last snowstorm. But they were realistically looking at pulling around 30,000, 35,000 of dried weight. And that number decreased to about 25, 28 of dried sellable flour. So it wasn't a huge drop, but when you're talking, you know, roughly a thousand to $1,500 a pound for weight, it's, it's, it's a substantial amount of weight that was lost. Uh, because we're outdoor farmers, this is just what happens. This is no different than raising beans and corn, which is what I was raised up doing. And sometimes you have bad years. The reality is though, we don't have any federal supplemental loans to help right. us out. We can't push off our principal payments until after harvest and make interest payments all year, which is the way I was raised up. That's what you did. 
can't do that. When, you know, when the door knock happens, they want their money. They want it right then. Just I do. I want my money when there's an invoice. I don't need excuses. I got bills to pay like everybody else. So it, it, it is a struggle. Uh, and then you add on top of that, the farming aspect that we do, it, it, it increases the percentage of failure. But a little bit in my mind, I'll just be honest, that's kind of what I like. I like the idea of it not always being just mundane and the same thing. Um, I like the idea that mother nature can bless me or pinch me. And I have to be prepared for that in every way, shape and form. So uh, you talk about growing up on a farm. Like, uh, do you see yourself as cultivator first, manufacturer second? Or do you like to be sort of in every, every part of the business? Or do you have a focal point? So I would say uh, I used to kind of view myself as a, a cultivator. Then I viewed myself as an extractor. First and foremost, I think I view myself as a cannabis business person. I have a lot of years of business behind me. I have a lot of years of business, cannabis business behind me. Um, but first and foremost, if you're not growing plants at the right price or the right quality, you don't have anything. So from a business standpoint, to me, I'm a cultivator at my, at my core and at my heart. Um, with that, the reason we ever got into extracts and I started doing extracts all the way back in 2006 uh, is when I started making my first extracts. When we started making them in those times, it was just to refine the product and make it a cleaner uh, consumption. Because when you're smoking the flour, you're smoking a bunch of carcinogen you don't need, plant material you don't need. All we actually need is the oil off that plant the medicinal benefit. So that's what kind of started sending me down that rabbit hole extracting. Um, I did every type of extractions you can do. And then I kind of handed the torch off to what's now my general manager. And he went far beyond what I ever did. His extraction skills exceed what mine are. Uh, and we commonly do consulting across the United States together. Uh, but with that, what my new role for this company is, is to be five miles out ahead of my team and sending back word of what's coming and what we're doing. I used to run five miles out, run five miles back, do it all, run five miles back out, do it, and I can't, you can't do that. It, it won't work. As a mom and pop, you're forced to do it. But after a while, you realize this just isn't sustainable. I won't be able to operate the business at the level I want to if I continue to keep going all the way to the front and coming back with the word of, oh, here's what we need to do. So jokingly, I say I just send back the homing pigeons now with the information, and I don't mind being drawn back to come back and take care of what needs to be. But I have a team now, but they don't need me here. I, I don't have to be at my business every single day for my business to operate. They operate just fine without me. I leave tomorrow morning for 36 hours. They honestly will barely even know I'm gone. They just, that's, that's not my role anymore is to stand there and go, are you doing this correctly? Are you doing that correctly? It's now my role to support them when they do wrong and tell them it's all right. And we're going to keep moving forward and help guide them the right road to where they can make the decisions where they don't make wrong decisions. We, um, I, I tell a lot of people, I'm thankful for all the dark that led me to the light. And there's a lot being said in that statement, but the reality is without all the mistakes and without all the fuck ups, there's no way I would be where I'm at today. And I try to express that to everybody. It's just not me. It's not just this business. It's life. That's life. And if you have someone there to support you when you fall down, rather than kick you in the side of the head and tell you, you fucked up, life's a whole lot easier. So that's kind of the mentality that we go. I like to keep a small crew. You heard me say I had 72 employees at one time. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of energy for me to deal with. I'm a very energy-based person. And that's kind of hard for me to absorb all those energies. I like dealing with the 10 young individuals that I have working for me now that are aspired to get to the next level. And working for me is not the easiest thing in the world. I, I, I had a complete stranger tell one of my employees one time, I don't even know the guy, I said, I'll bet working for Sean is different. And they said, yeah, what do you mean? I don't think he would accept anything but the absolute best you can do. And they said, no, he wants you to even do better than that because you know you can. And so it's not for everybody. I'm not the cup of tea for everybody. Believe it or not, I do realize people don't like me. And that's okay. It's a perfect time. As I say, you should take all my advice with a shot of tequila, a lime, and a little bit of salt. Maybe one more shot of tequila just to power it really well. Um, we know that we're doing things not wrong so we know we're we're not doing things the wrong way i'm pretty sure we're doing the right way but i can't guarantee you that my way is the only way we just know that it works the way that i do it and there's a reason that people call me from all over the world and ask about my simple based approach a quick side note i'm working with a gentleman in massachusetts 
that quote for an $18 million greenhouse setup. Mm-hmm. Okay, automated, super cool, really great. That didn't include, that was just the kit. That wasn't insulation, that wasn't operations, that was the kit. I spent 90 minutes on the phone with this guy. I replaced every bit of that square footage with a lower cost per gram to cultivate, far less employees, and it was all said and done and finished. His bill came to 4.8 million wow. instead of 18. That's why I'm noted for doing what I do. And I don't hold any secrets. You can call Russ Finch right now and order your own greenhouse. I don't care. I just figured out how to do cannabis in it really well. If you want me to teach you to do that, I will. I'm very reasonably priced. I'm not into this. Give me a hundred grand. It's so easy. I'll even tell you how it works right now. If you call me right now and said, Sean, we want to know how this is going to work. We're in Mississippi. Great. It's $5,000. Have the money ready when I get there. Pay for my flight, pay for my hotel, my food, my rental car, everything. Tell me your idea when we get there. I'm going to shoot it full of holes. I'm going to tell you over dinner how to fix it. Right there, you can leave and never say another word to me in my life, but I've just given you millions of dollars of ideas and how to make money over a steak dinner. Most of the time, what I have is another check waiting for me at the end of the dinner that says, how much can we consult for? I do it on a monthly basis. So at the end of the month, you don't want to ever want to deal with me again. Don't wire me the money. You'll never hear from me again. I promise you, I ain't going to call you if you don't give me the money. So that's how we do it. We don't lock people into all these contracts. You're locked in and you got to buy this and you've got to get lights from our guy. I'll give you my guy's number. I'm not trying to make money on him. He's trying to make This is my friend. I want him to make money. You can buy it from anybody. But my guy's the best deal. I promise you. That's why you work with me. So we've simplified this. It doesn't work for everybody because they're like, it's just too simple. You make it seem so easy. We want to complicate it more. Okay, go ahead. Build a gigantic indoor grow. Go on ahead and have a perpetual harvest where you harvest on a daily basis. Use salt-based nutrients and then come back in two years and tell me how broke you are. Because you're not going to make any money. You're not doing that. We actually try to get to make money. I'm not saying that people don't make money with that portfolio. Because they do make money with it. I'm saying I make more money. And it's all about the cost per gram. My consulting company is called CPG Consulting. Cost per gram consulting. Because nothing else matters at the end of the day. is what it costs to cultivate that gram of cannabis. Then we can go down the road of do we want to sell it as flour? Do we want to sell it as a pre-roll? Do we want to sell it as concentrates? Do we want to sell it as an edible? Do we want to sell it as a vape pen? We can go down that road later. But when my competition is up into the three and four fifty to produce pounds, and I'm telling you I can do it for $25.94, there should be no comparison in that once the proof's in the pudding. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, when you say you know you're running five miles down the road in front, uh, is that uh, CPG consulting? Is that the future? Or uh, do you plan on you know growing uh, Yeti and CPG simultaneously? Simultaneously, uh, I'm going over to Oklahoma tomorrow to start a licensing agreement. This will be our first uh, licensing agreement that Yeti Farms has done. Um, this will only be for the edibles. We have licensing agreements for, for cultivation, concentrates, and edibles now. This is only for the edible side. Um, we go tomorrow to start the licensing agreement process. So that is going to be a Yeti uh, adventure is what it will be. It's a Yeti Farms deal. CPG is just for the new clients that don't have any interest in doing any licensing with this, don't want to emulate exactly what we've done or follow our marketed brand. They simply just want to know how to do this for the cheapest cost per grant. That's receiving. What we're finding is the more and more states we go to after they visit my, my farm, my facility and sit and talk, and we get a few months relationship. Now what we're finding is most of these clients are wanting to partner with us and move forward through everything. They've seen enough of everything else. They, they like the way I pour a cup of tea. It fits for their palate. And then they say, we just want to do the full licensing agreement. We want to do everything. Um, where I'm running into an issue is exclusivity. Uh, some people want exclusive agreements. And I, I'm having a little bit of a problem with that. I really like helping mom and pops and people come from a lower level to an upper level. And when you get exclusivity, it knocks out the opportunity for a smaller group to be able to uh, benefit from the licensing agreement. So, these are all personal things I have to figure out for myself and decide what I want to do with them. But uh, what the decision will be made is whatever makes me sleep best at night. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today, Sean. Like it was very insightful and uh, just, uh, I mean, really enlightening. Thank you very much. Yeah. I appreciate you guys reaching out. Thank you so much. I, uh, 
I love doing these interviews. I'm often thrown into them on the spot. I'll show up and do a speech. And then 10 minutes later, someone's like, can you do a speech over here for me? Sure. What's it about? And I enjoy it. Um, I'm, I, I have a new phrase in life, a new saying in life, and we've all heard this, but I try to really live by this. I'll give you a little bit of a backstory on it. When I went to Amsterdam and started meeting people in 2007, I decided this was going to be a direction in my life I was going to go. I remember getting this book. I remember looking about three quarters of the way through this book and at the very back of it in three quarters of the way, there's a picture of a gentleman in Spain. He's in the Basque region of Spain. And he's sitting in a hammock underneath the tree and looking over a field of about 100, maybe 150 large outdoor cannabis plants. And uh, I'd have been, you know, 2007, this is 13, 14 years ago. So I was a kid at that point, about 30. And I remember thinking, holy shit, that's what I want to do. And I remember I was retired. I'm like, that's what I want to do with my life. This is, that's all I want to do. I want to like have my dog and chill in the Basque region of Spain. Fast forward, now I have this rather large legal cannabis farm in the state of Colorado, which I love immensely, Colorado, and all of its resources and snowmobiling and all that. Hunting's a big passions of mine. And now I've realized that that guy underneath the tree and that goal I'd set for myself, I actually have it. I have my own gigantic farm. I have my own lab. I have my own kitchen. I have my basset hounds. With I've got everything in my life I wanted. So kind of my new phrase is, I just remember when I wished for everything I currently it tends to minimize things for me and make me very pleased and happy with the decisions I've made to arrive where I'm at today. Excellent. Uh, no, and uh, to hear you're a hound guy, that's just, it's even better. Oh, hold on a second. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> this is, who's this? This is Erwin, this is Erwin Chapman. Erwin Chapman. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's a Hungarian European basset hound. He came Whoa. over. She's 17 months old this month, and he weighs 84 pounds. Oh my goodness, that's a big. Uh, he has a little brother, Roman, that runs around here too. But um, my boys are uh, definitely the light of my life. Uh, yeah, a lot of fun with them here at the house, and uh, <laughs> they provide endless laughs. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely a hound guy. I got one when I was 16 years old. And I've had a basset hound ever since then. So, oh my goodness! Well, it looks like he's having a good day. Oh, he's he's loving. It. Anytime Dad picks him up, he's having a great day. So, we appreciate the time and reaching out to us. Thank you so much. If uh, if we can help you out in the future, anybody else out in the future, it doesn't always have to be about money. You can just call and ask me questions. Anybody that sees this, I also love to help people with their personal growth. So, if anybody has any questions about your personal growth, call and chew my ear off. I will be more than happy to help you with anything. Growing your own cannabis at home is one of the most rewarding things you can ever do for yourself if you're a cannabis consumer. And I highly encourage that for people. So I'll, I'll pull out all the techniques and share all the secrets for anybody that would have any questions about home cultivation. Wow. Well, thank you very much for your time again. And uh, I am uh, you know hope to talk to you again soon. Anytime, my friend. Thank you so much for your time.